Hey everybody, my name is Bo Sanders. You're listening to Piecing It All Together. A couple months ago, Randy and I got to go talk to the Interfaith Council of Greater Portland. We were invited there by Lynn Taylor, and we want to thank her for that invitation and for hosting us. They asked us to come talk about our book, which had not been released at that point, and to talk about why we're so worried about what's going on in evangelicalism. It was a lively conversation. The group that had gathered there was very ecumenical from many different traditions and religious backgrounds, uh, serving in their various capacities with their congregations and faith communities. It was a very lively conversation. We enjoyed it a a lot, and I hope that you will be able to pick up on some of that uh, sense as you listen in here. Please like the Piecing It All Together Facebook page and check in with us often. We are putting up some online conversations uh, coming up soon, and we'd love for you to be a part of that. We also want to ask for your ongoing support through Patreon, and we are grateful for those who have had the vision to support us and uh, help us put out this podcast and to increase the conversation, and we want to say thank you. If you haven't ordered our book yet, I linked to it in the show notes. Uh, Formerly, it was available only on our publisher's website, Weaponstock, but it is now available um, more widely, and so there's going to be an Amazon link there as well. Enjoy this listen, and we would love your feedback. Okay, well, thank you for inviting us. We appreciate it. So, um... So yeah, we can talk about the book. Uh, the book is called, um, and it's being published by Wiffenstock. It should come out next month. Um, Decolonizing Evangelicalism, an 11.59 p.m. conversation. So Randy and I have developed uh, an interesting chemistry, and so we thought we would do it in our style today, which is that uh, normally, uh, most circles that Randy runs in, he's known as sort of the troublemaker, or the provocateur, or the, um, the instigator. He's a catalyst for change. And, uh, but on, in our podcast, uh, we take on an interesting uh, dynamic where I try and provoke him, with uh, with lists, I make lists, and then I try and provoke him and try and bring out his passion. So we thought we would do it in that style today. So, so we should say something yeah. about the book is written in that style, by the way. Yeah. So the book is a conversation. When we say conversation, we we start the conversation. We want to open it up to others, and the same with our podcast. It's called Piecing It All Together, and we talk about a lot of things, but it's basically seen as we call it a journey place. We want to journey together and bring in all kinds of voices, and we attempt to do that in our podcast by inviting people to join us live and having a, a live yeah. podcast. But um, and the the book is written basically after the introduction. Um, I the first chapter I'm asking Bo a bunch of oh no, you know you're asking me. I questions. ask you questions first. The second two chapters are me asking Bo questions, and then the last chapter is. Um, Bo asking me questions again, and that's that's kind of how the book works. So, and or we wrote it that way, I should say, because um, um, one, we have these conversations constantly, and so we're very attuned to each other and and talking back and forth. But uh, my favorite book, uh, one of my favorite books at least, was written by um, Paulo Freire and Miles Horton, um, and uh, it's called uh, "We Make the Road by Walking." Oh, yeah. So if you know. 
Paulo Freire, um, the pedagogy of their press, and Miles Horton, the Highlander School. People familiar with the Highlander School down in uh, Chattanooga area. Uh, Martin Luther King attended, uh, Rosa Parks, Andrew Young, SNCC movement, all of them were trained at the Highlander School. Those, they're two of the greatest educators in the world. And they had this conversation back and forth. And I read that book and I went, man, I wish every book was written this way. So, so we decided to do one that way. So, and, and it also uh, is a book uh, very much about post-colonial thought. So, um, and it, it sort of started out that way and then it, we saw it was actually a little bit broader. And, and it could have almost written, been written... Um, you know, decolonizing Christianity, but because we are both from evangelical backgrounds, um, we felt like that that might not be fair, and so we um, are basically trying to decolonize the thing that we were formed with, and uh, and then also, you know, there's some broader concerns about Christianity in general, but uh, yeah. yeah. So I thought it would, what we would do is um, is that we would begin the dialogue and then we could open it up um, for people to, to contribute and, and uh, push back or to add uh, different perspectives. But I thought we would focus on the part of the subtitle that why is it why is it eleven fifty nine? So I thought that would be our our topic. Yeah. Um, why the urgency? Yeah, probably everybody in the room could answer that. <laughs> uh, like, um, evangelicalism is on its very last leg. Um, you know, we wondered, and teaching history, American history, I also wonder, you know, why is it that that evangelicalism, uh, you know, because I'm for anybody keeping their own beliefs. I don't need anybody to believe what I believe. I like everybody to believe what they want. But why is that, that, that all of that is sort of the opposite of what evangelical is now standing for? Yeah. So, um, you know, with, with uh, 72% white evangelicals voting for Trump um, and all that stands for, you know, we were trying to take a hard look at it and say, like, is evangelicalism over? Uh, and should it be or, 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 or maybe is there something sort of worth retaining in that word? And, um, and of course, the, the split came, which everybody's familiar with, that the, you know, the, the late, uh, late 19th and early 20th century between the modernism and fundamentalism and science and faith and all of that. And, and, uh, and um, evangelicalism has never recovered from that. And so, um, and, and it sort of has gone from... Um, you know, to, to almost the ridiculous stage now in terms of what it was at one time. So we wanted to talk about that. We want to talk about some historic stuff. We wanted to talk about, um, like, uh, you know, well, evangelicals are supposed to be about Jesus, so where would Jesus be in all this sort of thing, you know? And, uh, and so we spent a good deal of time talking about, you know, was Jesus a post-colonial theologian? You know, he certainly lived under empire, right? So, anyway. All right, so here's the five reasons that I have sense urgency, and I just want to throw them out to you and then let you rip off of them. Okay. So the first is that the past is still with us. The colonial legacy lives on in so many ways. It is baked into the bread, as we say, and it is just part of the DNA of the American myth. And so... The, its presence, though, is so assumed that sometimes it's unspoken. And this idea of that everyone has to uh, 
the the permission to force other people into our views and to impose through legislation our way of life on other people is one of those aspects of the colonial legacy. Yeah, and 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 here we really are talking about Christianity in general, yeah. um, in terms of a historic Christianity in this country, um, and, and it it really goes way back. I'm a very contextual person, <laughs> so you have to forgive me for going back, but. You know, about 100 A.D., uh, one of the early church fathers, Antioch, uh, or Ignatius of Antioch, um, he starts to try and contextualize the church to the Roman Empire. And so, you know, there's the field marshal and the military, and then there's the bishop. There's the captains, there's the pastors, and et cetera. And so, you know, maybe that was a, a kind of a hierarchy that is foreign. I would call it foreign to what Jesus taught, but... Um, but uh, when it met Constantinian Christianity, um, there was just no recovery, and it still hasn't recovered. And so we have a lot of hierarchy. We have a lot of dualisms. Um, the dualisms are the thing that's sort of my pet peeve. Um, and, uh, you know, the spiritual, the sacred, when, when indeed everything is sacred, every moment is sacred. So um, the uh, extrinsic categorization that came out of that, uh, the hierarchies, uh, you know, if, if you have a dualism, something has to be over something else, right? If, you're, if the physical is less than the spiritual or is the physical, uh, the body is less than the mind, as the, they taught in the Enlightenment, um, something has to be over something else. And after a while, you think that way. So men have to be over women. Whites have to be over people of color. Um, you know, uh, animals have to be over varmints and, and uh, you know, um, uh, uh, flowers have to be over weeds, and you know, and it's it's really built into the Western worldview, and it's that worldview that I would say has captured Western Christianity, especially American Christianity, uh, and that worldview is not the worldview that's going to help us survive uh, and our grandchildren to survive. So, um, so we want to uh, take a look at that and uh, and sort of. Um, flesh that out and say what's what's worth keeping, what's not worth keeping, and how has that in particularly affected evangelicalism, and and it, it, it's probably they are the, if you will, the canary in the coal mine. Um, but, it's, but it's not like we can actually, if you're a Christian, like you can say, well, see, evangelicals are that way, because if you're a Christian, you're part of the same disease. So, yeah. So the second thing that gives me <clears throat> urgency is that our relationship with the earth is limited. And so if we poison the waters and the salinate the oceans and pollute the air and these fires, right, that are increasingly a threat, it seems like creation itself is... Um, is indicating that it, we're not just out of balance, but there is something toxic about our approach, and especially our relationship with the earth. Yeah. So I would go back to this idea of hierarchy again and dualism. And, you know, it's funny. Um, so, uh, you know, we're, we're pretty quick to stand up for our own self and our own beliefs, right, usually. Um, but there's a... Most religions, not all religions, most religions, and, and often mo many philosophies, um, not just Christianity, have human beings at, as the pinnacle of creation. And um, 
you know, um, it's uh, uh, sort of a, you know, I mean, we could talk about uh, religions that have reincarnation, where humans are at the, the top. We could talk about the sort of Christian idea of um, um, what is called stewardship or, you know, um, dominion. dominion, yeah, is another kind of more crass way to say that. <laughs> so if we are not all connected in a sort of an equal way, if we're not together, if we're not all related, if we're not all as important as the other, then, then we will have the right to say what can and what can't exist. And, and I would say, you know, in our indigenous thinking, there is, we're just part of everything. We're not above it, we're not below it, we're just a part of the big circle, we're part of everything. And I think that is the way that you survive on earth. Um, I, you know, I mean, you could go into uh, molecular biology. Right now, we actually are related to each other. We are sharing each other's um, uh, molecules, <laughs> being in this room together. You know, if my hand is on this table, there's movement going on in that table uh, with my hand. There's, and and so, uh, you know, uh, quantum physics sort of level. So I don't. It, it's not just metaphorical. We are all related. We are. I mean, there's, you know, we have. Uh, I forget. Uh, but I think it's sixty-one percent of the genes of a daffodil. You know, um, and so everything out there, every plant, every tree, every rock, um, every bird, you know, all unique, all different, all different in species, if you want to use that term. Um, but we all depend on each other. Even the mosquitoes, and I can't think of uh, anything. My definition of hell is being locked up in a room with, a, you know, 100,000 mosquitoes. Um, but they have a purpose, right? And um, if we begin to think of ourselves as um, the ruler of everything else or the highest, the pinnacle of everything else, um, then I think um, it's going to be difficult to, um, to begin to... Uh, you know, not decide who gets to to exist for our pleasure and who doesn't. And of course, that's exactly what we've done, and that's the mess that we're in right now. Um, I don't know if that's what you're thinking about, but that's what yeah. came to mind. When yeah. So, the third reason that I'm sensing urgency is that generationally, there is something. Has by, the, by the way, <laughs> Bo always has lists. And I always have stories. So it's true. <laughs> it's true. This is how we work. It is. Yeah, that's right. So. Generationally, something has uh, shifted, and it feels mm. like you know MLK. We just celebrated uh, MLK Day. It was fifty-one years ago, and that generation is beginning to pass away, and it feels like um, whether it's the. Uh, American Indian movement, that the momentum in the civil rights movement, that so much of that momentum generationally is fading, mm -hmm. and that this new generation does, it does not active in the same way, and that the, some of the gains that were made 50 and 60 years ago are actually being challenged, and that there's not a generation coming up behind them to continue that work, it feels like that window is coming to a close at the same time that the white evangelical has become uh, politicized and angry. And so this backlash seems to be the, 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 the perfect storm for a, ge a generational gap 
to lose some of the progress that was made. Yeah. So most of us in this room, not all of us, are boomers, right? <laughs> um, and some Gen Xers. Uh, and maybe one millennial? <laughs> okay, yeah. two millennials. Two millennials. Three millennials. Okay. Yay. Uh, We've got four of them today. Okay. Yay. So I'm happy about that. The, I, there's a couple things going on socially. Um, yeah, um, uh, you know, I, you know, the, the, the most traumatic incidents in my life were the Vietnam War and the death of, um, I, I was, I was too young to, I remember the day, but I was too young to really understand when Kennedy got, John Kennedy got killed. But I, you know, I remember King, I remember Bobby Kennedy. Um, uh, the Vietnam War probably still is the most, uh, you know, sort of socially traumatic event that I recall and um, lived through. So um, I'm, uh, you know, it's easy to get disillusioned, but so I teach people who are, predominantly uh, millennials now. Um, and I, I'm actually hopeful. I think this generation of millennials, one of the things, they, they may not say it in the same way, but I think they're saying something similar to boomers. In our generation, we said, we reject the paradigm that was handed down to us. Mm -hmm. hmm. And that's what I hear millennials saying. We don't want your paradigm. Um, we want to create something different. We don't want your racism. We don't want your, you know, uh, white supremacy. Um, you know, phobia. Uh, we don't want your, yeah, you know, phobias, LGBTQ fears, and you know, all of those kinds of things. And so, I'm really hopeful. Um, I, I don't still have a great grasp on what's going on there, but uh, I know there's a lot of at least, um, you know. Uh, um, activism on social media and there's a lot of people showing up for rallies and things like that now how does that get organized into long-term stuff that's that's i think the question but um, um hopefully they'll do a better job than our generation did so, but but i think um so for example and i'm not by the way i'm, I'm not um um uh, casting my lot with any of the democratic um <coughs> candidates at this point, um, but if you just look at as a social phenomenon, the Bernie movement, right? I mean, 76% uh, of millennials, and they're out there. You know, he has the <laughs> largest crowds of anybody, right? So it's like they want to see change, you know? And, uh, you know, are we going to help them get that change? Um, uh, it's, it's, I think it's no longer like, are they going to help us, but are we going to help them? Mm -hmm. Interesting. I don't know, maybe other people have thoughts about that. Yeah, yeah. We can. Fourth thing is that things are weird right now, and in ways that seem tough to wrap your mind around. So, like, Russia runs fake ads on Facebook, and somehow that taints our election. But when I ask people even one follow-up question, like, but how did that influence the election? You get into this weird rabbit hole where you're talking about how people have siloed themselves and their, their information streams and how they're so susceptible to conspiracy theories and, and, and uh, any question that you ask, right, uh, no matter what comes up, like uh, What's the Matter with Kansas was a book 
a couple of years ago where people vote against their own self-interest. Mm-hmm. And then you ask, well, why? Anytime you ask the why question, you fall down some weird rabbit hole where things become really confusing and you can't quite get your mind around uh, how in the world evangelicals can support this immoral right person so blindly uh, the the gridlock in congress anytime you ask the why question things get so abstract and weird you you end up thinking i i feel like i i understand less now than more Mm -hmm. and so things are very confusing for people and so they give up yeah so i i have an answer for that it may not be the answer of um you know, other people in the room, but um, my answer is that the roots of America are deeply, deeply white supremacists. Mm -hmm. And um, most organizations, most um, institutions, and most individuals uh, who are white sort of fail to recognize that. And when you fail to recognize the root of the problem that you're chasing all these other things around, um, until we can face that and deal with not just, you know, changing our beliefs about that, but changing what, what we do, our practices, our laws, et cetera. Um, we're going to continue to have these, um, you know, residual problems because, you know, I mean, not everything that's wrong in America is because of that, but a good deal of it is. Huh. Uh, and so um, we've just got to get to the roots of white supremacy, which for me, white supremacy is... is uh, the normalization of whiteness and the, and white privilege mostly. It's just the idea that, you know, it's a historic fact. We know the country was formed for, for white, you know, landowning males, mm-hmm. and everybody else is an afterthought. And so what we need to do is we've got to go back, and, and as uh, we have a, a Native American, the, the first Native American candidate running for president, Mark Charles. I don't know if anybody knows Mark Charles. He's running as an independent um, but you should listen to what he has to say. He's got great arguments. He's also on, uh, he's got a TED Talk called uh, We the People. Um, and But his whole thing is that, you know, we the people doesn't mean we the people. We need to specif- we need to specify what that means, and then we need to change our laws once it's changed in the Constitution. Um, so it, it specifically deals with that. So we have to go back and we have to change the system. Uh, Mark Charles, markcharles.com, um, or it might be markcharles2020.com, that's what it is, yeah. Um, so uh, Mark's a, a, a good friend, um, and but he's got a lot of really good things to say. Um, you know, we know he's not going to win, but uh, but he's definitely bringing new conversation into the race. So. Well, I appreciate what you're saying, because I think nationalism and white supremacy go hand in hand. Absolutely. And, and the whole American dream and the American myth of you know, that all you have to do is just pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. And, you know, um, well, part of the Southern Manifesto, too, really. Uh, one of the things that you and I talk about from time to time is the different, uh, the different masks or, or uh, monstrous faces that um, white supremacy will take on. So in regards to Native American and, uh, and, and Mexican folks, so red and brown, it's primarily land, right? For uh, black communities, it is often economic because injustice, it's yeah. injustice because it's rooted in uh, law and economy and, and slavery. And then there's always war for uh, yellow and eastern 
Asian, Middle Eastern people, for olive skinned. And so the masks that white supremacy wears takes on different manifestations depending on the group that it is moving against. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and a friend of ours, uh, Andrea Smith, has written a really good uh, paper, um, and she deals with the ways that the different faces of white supremacy with different people groups. So we can't say, well, it's the same as Native Americans as it is African Americans, as it is for Southeast Asian Americans, as you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, racism looks different to different people groups. So, you know, and most of us aren't sophisticated enough to sort of understand how that plays out. And so it, you know, it takes some work. Um, so for, for Native people, um, it, it's, there's, a, there's a whole plethora of, of things that have gone wrong and things that, you know, one of the things that happened was that as all of our quote-unquote friends have created policy to help us, that nothing can ever get done in Native country because the laws are, 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 are so thick. It's just, you know, there, we have so many regulations and things that prevent anything from ever happening. Title 25. Yeah, there's all, yeah. I mean, there are people who um, can major in college in just Native law and still come out and not know exactly what's going on. Uh, so um, so it's death by bureaucracy, right? Yeah. And we see that on a tribal level, uh, trying to deal with the tribes and things. And the, and the tribes, generally, what has happened is the Bureau of Indian Affairs, who is the, the basically the ward of Native tribes, um, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, we call it BIA, stands for Boss Indians Around. <laughs> so the Bureau of Indian Affairs, um, even though they've created a system and then they've gotten Native people to fit in the system, but the system is still an evil system. And so, um, so now you have all these Native people doing all this bureaucracy, you know, and nobody can ever get anything done. So it, it's difficult to, 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 to find out how we stand up for Native rights when we can't even quite figure out what they are. Last thing that's causing me anxiety about this uh, that I'll name today is that inside evangelicalism, and if you're an outsider, you may not know that um, inside there is this very strange fascination with bringing about the end of the world. (laughs) And that may seem cartoonish or, right, but as insiders, former insiders, we know that that end times focus is a driving motivation to some of the weird things you see in the news. Israel was founded 71 years ago, modern Israel. There is a way of reading one of Jesus' statements that said, this generation will not pass away until all of these things have come to pass. And there's a, in evangelicalism, many people think that he meant this generation. Right now, from the founding of Israel, all of this stuff will come before they pass away. And so some evangelicals have taken it upon themselves to help the end times right. get ushered in. Dispensational theology. Yes, yeah. right. In, good. In dispensational theology. So that makes me nervous because, yeah. for two reasons, mm-hmm. most people don't know that that's a, there and that it's like a, a, a mania that sits inside the heart of ev- some evangelical communities. And it seems like, well, that... That seems impossible. And so there's a, a, a dismissal that happens to think, well, that's a niche sort of thing. But it has enough momentum behind it that it pulls up things like foreign policy, military budgets, other things into its wake. Versus in my community, 
Half of the people I know didn't vote in the last election because they couldn't bring themselves to vote for the lesser of two evils. Mm -hmm. And I said, as a pastor, can I please ask you to vote for less evil? (laughs) 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 So this stuff makes me nervous, man. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and, And it's not just... Uh, sort of, uh, I mean, not not you know, premillennialism is a uh, is in dispensationalism is something that came about around the same time as fundamentalism, and so um, it's you know it's, you can trace it back uh, historically, sort of how the, where the idea and philosophy comes from, um, and then they found scriptures that would fit that philosophy, that idea. But um, there's another group that I'm actually more worried about. Um, and that is, um, I don't know if, uh, and, and because I know people who've been involved in this, and I've been following this for, I think, eight or nine years now. Um, if you've seen the Netflix special called The Family, mm-hmm. how many have seen The Family? Yeah. Yeah. So, what's that? I read the book by Jeff Sharp. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, that's scary because um, not only in, in a conspiracy theory sort of way, it's not just like, They've got this thing going all across the United States, but the general philosophy has uh, uh, come down into mainstream evangelicalism. And, and basically what that philosophy is, is God designates a leader like Trump, and, and we have to support that leader, and the quote-unquote kingdom of God will be ushered in by violence. Take over all levels of government. Yes, all levels of government, Exactly. So, um, so I had a good friend, one of my best friends. Um, he would attend the national prayer. They put on the national prayer breakfast every year, by the way, um, where you know all your senators and congressmen and and uh, president and vice Supreme president. Court justice. Yes, they all attend. They're all part of that thing. And uh, and my friend said, you know, and and then there are all these after parties, you know, at the Ritz Carlton and all the rest. And um, and he said, you have sheiks and generals and all these people at these parties, you know, and the single malt, 15-year-old whiskey's flowing, and, yep. you know. And, and he said, but it's all about influence. It's all about this group influencing the leaders of the world to create the quote-unquote kingdom of God on earth. And um, that concerns me even more than the dispensational stuff because I, I know these people, and I know how it's sort of... And, and if you want to understand why 71% of evangelicals supported Trump, that's one of the three streams, right? So, um, yeah, the other two streams are obvious. It's uh, the uh, Roe versus Wade, and it's a uh, homophobic um, yeah. you know, belief. So, but, um, And that's legit. Yeah. yeah. So that's why we wrote a book called Decolonizing Evangelicalism. Hope, We're, hope you address evangelical Zionism, which is sort of what you said. Yeah, that that support of Israel, regardless, that re, what we just talked about, that explains that yeah. both Democratic and Republican sides of the aisle is like what you know. If you come out against Israel, you lose all the religious right completely. You lose all the evangelicals, and so everybody's afraid. You know, they're more afraid of um, separating themselves from the nation of Israel than they are of Trump. And unfortunately, there are Democrats who play into that as well. Absolutely. Uh, and that's a problem. Yeah. 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 So, I just thought we would open it up for dialogue. Mm-hmm. Question number seven. Yeah. I make it number one on my list. So what do we do? Yeah. I, 
Absolutely. Everything you have said is absolutely true, and I would guess this room is 100% behind that. Uh, although I did learn a few things that, um, about this Zionism that even I am not aware enough of. What can be done? What, I mean, is, that's where I get stuck, because it seems so over, overpowering. So without using a Western mindset, because um, I, I, I believe what Milt has told us, our, um, we're going to change the world only through native, native understanding of something other than a Western dualism. How do we do that? I, I think groups like this are a great start because partnership is our only way forward. For those of us doing anti-colonial or anti-imperial work, we have to be in conversation with people who are doing a decolonial work. Because if you are center, and you're yeah. speaking to the center, right, of power, the communities that have been historically marginalized have something to say to us because they see from a different perspective uh, how power works that we who have been embedded in the system of power cannot see with our own eyes. We're too close. So um, what we've been doing for all these years and attempting to do in, in fits and starts and what we're trying to do again is, uh, you know, we train, uh, mentor um, young and sometimes not so young leaders, both indigenous and non-indigenous, and what we try to do is basically, and I tell people right off, when I go speak, uh, sometimes I'll do like a three-day workshop or conference on, you know, uh, the Western worldview, and you got to realize where the problems lie before you can change them. But, and, um, and, and I will say, you know, my goal here today is to convert you from a Western worldview to a more indigenous worldview. And so that's what we do. I mean, that's the, the, the bottom line of everything that we do is to, to get people to think differently. And, and like Bo said, you can only really think differently when you start hanging with people who are different than you, who have a different worldview. Let me say this. If it surprised you that Trump won in 2016, your circles are too small. If you don't know anyone who voted for Trump, or it didn't seem like that was possible, you might want to get change up your community a little bit, get around maybe uh, some communities of color or some uh, rural people with rural ties. Because um, uh, many of my friends, they were traumatized by the 2016 election. It never once dawned on them that that was even possible. But it's because in our day of self-selecting our groups, um, we have not just uh, created echo chambers, which is what people talk about, but actually they've become distortion loops because we're only hearing people who already agree with us. And so I would say if that surprised you and it seems unimaginable, then you might want to look for some different communities to go and listen to and uh, broaden your circles. I'll even go one better than that. Okay. <laughs> if if you think the problem in America is Donald Trump, then you don't understand yeah, the problem. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and I, oh. there's so much disinformation. That's yeah. the that's the 
the thing that clouds We live in such a divided time. So uh, I have the other, I'll tell you the other side of that story. I have an evangelical friend, uh, he's a pastor of a church, mm-hmm. where Black Lives Matter had been meeting. And then one night at the meeting, somebody was rummaging through their church material and figured out that they weren't open and affirming. They weren't um, LGBT um, affirming. And so Black Lives Matter left in support, in solidarity with the gay community. We just live in an intensely divided time, which is why, for me, dialogue and partnership is like it has to be our first move is to be in uh, communication and partnership with people who don't see the world the way that we see it. Mm. I'd like to uh, mention a small group that I've been active in for five or six months called Crossing Party Lines. Oh, a lady here in Portland started this group to get people with divergent political viewpoints to get together and, and talk. And uh, in fact, there's a meeting coming up this Tuesday. And it's, uh, she moderates and she says, we you know, don't expect to change anybody's mind. <laughs> don't uh, accuse anybody of having stupid beliefs. But just listen. <laughs> and sometimes it isn't easy. Mm-hmm. But at this particular group, it's never really that, that I've experienced much tension because to even go to a meeting yeah. like this, you have to be somewhat open to the I think. There, the Jewish people do not believe in inherency of Scripture, for instance, because it's part of their culture to discuss and debate it all, yeah. never come to resolution, but to sit at the gate in the ancient times and talk about it and just give as many opinions as possible. We might want to touch on scripture here uh, because it it becomes problematic in a lot of ways in evangelicalism. Um, uh, Just the way that uh, scripture is looked at, all right? So it's looked at as a sort of the, in evangelicalism, it is the final arbiter. Well, how can things that people have written so long ago where they don't even have the original manuscripts and even if they did you wouldn't understand what they were thinking be a final arbiter and so it ends up being this is what I say it is and this is what in in and but it's used as a weapon then you're not you're going against scripture you're not going against me you're going against God who wrote this right so my scriptures are is creation out there my scriptures is you know is is setting at the ocean and Setting in the woods, and and um, you know that's that's where I feel great spirit, great mystery talking to me. And um, you know, I've found comfort in a lot of the words that Jesus has to say. I understand the scriptures because I had to study them uh, as a you know student at my various levels, and I understand various viewpoints. But I have just a, a general problem of us using a book to be the deciding factor in everything. Um, so that, you, Bo might want to add to that. And the other thing I want to come back to, if you want to say something about the scriptures or not, but is that there are there is um, this whole uh, movement in evangelicalism called progressive evangelicalism. You're all familiar with that. Folks like Jim Wallace, Sojourners, um, uh, Shane Claiborne, Shane Claiborne yeah, um, Ron Sider, uh, John Perkins. Um, there's, um, and, and still, it doesn't mean that 
Diana Butler yeah, Bass. Yeah, Tony Campolo, Diana Butler Bass. Yeah. yeah, these are people who would say that we want to retain uh, that the spirit of evangelicalism from you know way back and bring it back to. In fact, there was a something called the Chicago Declaration in 1973, which we talk about in our book, um, and a list of all the signers who said, you know, we've got to uh, get evangelicalism away from fundamentalism and bring it back into a, a socially conscious, social action, active movement. And there's still a lot of that going on. So we have progressive evangelicals. We have a groups called ex-evangelicals now, um, we, uh, post-evangelicals, all kinds of people who still in one way or another relate or, or by not relating relate to that word. And so that's probably a, a broader brush than most people think of. So most people today, and this is why we said 11.59 p.m. conversation, when you think of evangelicalism right now, all you think of is the 71% of white evangelicals who supported Trump, right? But that's not the, that's not the whole And every denomination has, that's yeah, exactly. around this table has evangelicals as part of that denomination. Yeah, yeah. That's a great point. Mm-hmm. And prog- people that call themselves progressive and, you know. You asked about what we can do. I've really taken to the idea from uh, Peter Rollins. He has a book called How Not to Speak of God. And he has this idea called reverse evangelism, where we who consider ourselves people of faith or believers, we go out into our community and listen to our neighbors with a posture that allows our heart to be converted to the thing that matters to them. So instead of us trying to convince them to care about the thing we do, it's allowing our heart to be converted to the thing that matters in their world. And I think if people of faith took on a posture of being converted to the cares of their neighbors instead of trying to convince their neighbors to care about the things that they do, that would probably be a big enough swing that it might change the momentum. That reminds me of my mother. When I was a kid, you know, I would say, Mom, you don't believe that. Why do you say that? Why, why are you... She'd always say when somebody else is talking, Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. I'm going, Mom, no, you don't. You know, and she had that great empathy, and she listened. Yeah. Like, she just jumped right into their huh. world, world, their worldview, everything. And it's like she had a gift for that. Yeah. So, you know, it's exactly what you're saying. My, I think that's absolutely true. It's my third missiological imperative, by the way. But the, right here, I have one sentence. Researchers today are saying that's the attitude that's going to save the Christian church, period, because we are dying because we don't have that attitude. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I don't yeah. Can, can we let her speak? Yeah. I think, I think yeah. one of the things that gets in the way of that, and I think you've diagnosed many of the things that are wrong with evangelicalism, but I think one of the big barriers to empathy and to changing our minds and to learning is the threat of hell. Um, the idea that we have to get a very specific list of theological propositions right, and if we don't, the consequences of that are eternal and terrible, and if our neighbors don't, the consequences of that are eternal and terrible, because if you think those are the stakes, then you can't let yourself even start to ask questions, because what if you go to hell, and you can't stop to listen to your neighbor, because you have, like, you know, a limited time to convince them, or they will go to hell, and it poisons every human interaction and it poisons our own minds as well, I think. You have not overstated the problem. (laughs) (laughs) It is... That that inflicts so many denominations. It is... um, 
in the evangelicals have a, a unique addition to that, which if you're not an insider, you may not know about, but it's, it's called double, double insulation, which is not only do you need to keep yourself pure from the influence of the world, yeah. but you can't be affiliated with people who don't because it might rub off on you. Right. So you're double insulated. And so that's a, a buffer, right, that's creating this gulf between us where we get isolated in our silos and we're only hearing people who already agree with us. It is a really, um, uh, a very tricky thing to navigate, which is not only do I need to get this right, but I have to only associate with people who get it right. So I can't be wrong on the gay issue, but I also can't hang around people who aren't right on the gay issue. Puritanism. That can have some really devastating effects as I experience. Also realizing people are moving to a different place and this fight of power, how I see it, is we are going from a certain percentage of people in power to another, and that is where the huge The one one thing I would caution about, because I do like spiral dynamics, but the one thing I would caution about is it's not inevitable. Oh, right. Right? And if we will not confront our colonial past, we actually just recreate it in different means and uh, reinvent the, the levels of oppression and violence in the system. Uh, yeah, so. So a little different context. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, worshiping at a denomination that is progressive, but colonial at the same time. The Episcopal Church is pretty old here. You know, uh, you go further, far enough east, and any of the old congregations, their building was built with slave, la- slave labor or capital-derived from it. Uh, my particular congregation was founded in 1851. So there's got to be some roots of colonialism there. Well, and, and you know, colonialism is, is always with us, whether our churches are built by slaves or not, right? Right. I right, mean, yeah. we're, we are living in still, uh, Native people in this country are living under colonial rule. Yeah. We don't have sovereignty. When we talk about Native sovereignty, it's, that's not real. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's uh, that's as sovereign as the United States will allow us to be, which is not sovereignty, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the the right to vote, mm-hmm. you know, when certain groups tell you, you know, only certain people are going to be allowed to vote, and even if they show up to vote, and even if the machines aren't quote unquote broken and everything else, they're not going to be counted; they're going to be thrown out. Mm-hmm. So, so this is all part part of the same colonial structure that roots, you know, itself back in those days. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then there's the whole neo-colonial structure. You know, we're supporting those colonial structures with our dollars every day. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know the, the 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 wealth of the you know the the great titans that started the oils and the rubber factories and everything else. You know, and all the subsidiaries from those. You know, we're still allowing them to have more rights than other people, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so it's very. We're still living in a very colonial. Well, in our book, in my chapter, when he's asking me questions, I name three groups that make me very nervous, and the Anglicans are one of them, okay. because so many post-evangelicals are converting to uh-huh. Anglicanism that they're actually uh, finding refuge within the forms of the Anglo 
capitalist system, right? Mm-hmm. And so that makes there's something about that that makes me just sends a light up where I go, whoa, 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 why are they so comfortable leaving evangelicalism and moving to being Anglican? Why is that an easy transition? Mm-hmm. And so there's something about that that really, uh, you know, you gives me Christian. gives me caution. <laughs> That you're afraid of? That I'm nervous why evangelicals are so comfortable converting to. And if the answer is because of the reinforced structures, which are in the legacy of European Christianity or Christendom, then, I, then I'm going to you know, flag that and say, we need to, we need to talk about this. There's a hidden hip- mm-hmm. conservatism yeah. within yeah. most bar yeah. churches. Yeah. Yeah. They meet in a bar, they use yeah. an overhead, yeah. they sing fancy songs, yeah. but there's a conservatism underneath in their theology. Yeah, yeah. And I, I joke because I'm now I'm in a super liberal church, and uh, and I love my liberals. That I just they're they're some of the nicest, kindest, most open-minded people I've ever met. Mm-hmm. But I joke with them that the most common injury in mainline churches is tennis elbow from patting ourselves on the back. (laughs) And that white smugness is it blinds us to the anti-colonial work that's needed, especially in partnership with um, communities of color. Yeah, so to wrap up our book, um, I think uh, when, when we were doing it, we were trying to not just present like those people who are struggling with evangelicalism, you know, because there's a lot who are struggling with evangelicalism right now. And by the way, the Mennonite Church has been really good to me. We're, you know, they I get all kinds of invitations to do all kinds of stuff, and I like a lot of the work that they're doing. Um, but um, just wanted to throw that in because yeah. we have a Mennonite yeah. presence. Um, but we wrote it uh, as a sort of a, a, a way for us to begin to think out of the boxes we've got ourselves into as a country. So it's, it's not really it, just about evangelicalism. It's sort of got a little bit broader view. So what would you Because the evangelicals are in the news so much right now, not when we wrote it. We, you know, we started writing it three years ago. And um, it wasn't. But I think that because it's such a, a fascination that people have, like, what is this? That um, some people will read it, hopefully, as sort of an outsider perspective, and it'll open up some understanding for them about what what exactly is going on inside this confounding, confusing problem. I expect we'll get in a lot of trouble yeah. uh, with this book. Um, by the right kind of trouble, though. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you all for engaging with us today and for being in dialogue. We really appreciate the invitation. Are you? Thank you.